it is understandable that deep feelings of personal inadequacy accompany the awesome recognition of the privilege of bearing testimony of Jesus Christ and of building His kingdom for the rest of my life. I deeply love and respect <clears throat> these brethren with whom I will share the balance of life on earth and recognize the sanctity of their calling. I feel as a sprouting acorn in a forest of giant, stalwart, noble oak. The wellsprings of gratitude and love overflow within me. Gratitude for exceptional beloved parents who have given their five sons the priceless heritage of a righteous example. And to those four brothers for their strength and testimony. Gratitude to a beloved, cherished companion and wife and to our lovely children. Janine has ever been a model of pure testimony, love, and devotion. She is a tower of strength to me. Gratitude to the precious youth that I know, especially those met in missionary service. Among these I find some of my most cherished personal friends. In gratitude to these brethren and to our beloved prophet, whom I know is the mouthpiece of God on earth. I deeply love President Kimball. Despite feelings of personal inadequacy, I am at peace. For the Lord has said, And if men come unto me, I will show unto them their weakness. I give unto men weakness that they may be humble. And my grace is sufficient for all men that humble themselves before me. For if they humble themselves before me and have faith in me, then will I make weak things become strong unto them. And again, I will tell you in your mind and in your heart by the Holy Ghost, which shall come upon you and shall dwell in your heart. I know the reality of the promptings of the Holy Ghost. In times of urgent need, after meditation and prayer, to receive confirmation of a decided course of action, those promptings have given the comforted feeling that it was right. Other times, without beckoning, counsel and instruction and assurance has come through the power of the Holy Ghost. And then in times, there flood, has flooded into my mind and heart warnings of impending danger that would have otherwise overtaken me. Yes, I know that Spencer W. Kimball is a prophet of God. I know that Jesus Christ lives and loves each one of us. I know that God, our Eternal Father, answers prayer unmistakably when we live worthily of such answers. I publicly commit my life, my energy, all that I am to the service of the Master and to the building of His kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen. amen.
Elder Monson and I have traveled a good many miles together over a good many years. Elder Monson and I and Louis Jacobson likewise traveled together for a long time over the years of our lives. And I hope, with Brother Monson's permission, I may now travel with him a little farther on the road to Jericho. Anciently, Jesus asked the Pharisees this question, What think ye of Christ? Those Pharisees were so misdirected in their thinking that no man was able to answer him a word. But had they known it, the question was vital to their own best interests, just as it is to our own well-being today. What think ye of Christ? To bring it down to our own day, let us ask ourselves, what do we personally think of him? Latter-day Saints are able to identify him very quickly. Christ is Jesus of Nazareth, who was born of Mary in Bethlehem. He also was our Redeemer and our Creator, the Divine Son of God. But knowing who He is, what shall we do about Him? Shall we fully accept Him, or brush Him aside, or take some middle-of-the-road attitude and compromise our beliefs according to existing pressures? The misdirected Pharisees with whom He spoke took pride in rites and rituals, but were nevertheless condemned by the Lord because they neglected the weightier matters of the law—fair judgment, mercy, and the exercise of true faith which produces righteous works. When the Savior spoke of those weightier matters, He referred to personal relationships between people such as Brother Monson has been talking about. It is significant that he made those relationships a vital part of his gospel. It is indeed remarkable that the nature of our dealings with our fellow men will determine in large measure our status in the kingdom of heaven. In other words, we ourselves may be like the ancient Pharisees. We may attend to rites and rituals, and yet overlook the weightier matters such as brotherly kindness, honesty, mercy, virtue, and integrity. Let us never forget that if we omit them from our lives, we may be found unworthy to come into His presence. Think for a moment of the second great commandment to love our neighbors as ourselves. How many observe it? Keep in mind that the Lord said it is of like importance to the first great command, which is to love God with all our heart and soul. Consider, too, His commandment to do unto others as we would be done by. How many live that law? How many go down that road to Jericho? Read again the parable of the Good Samaritan especially in the light of the last part of the 25th chapter of Matthew. Do not these scriptures teach that if we fail to do right by our fellow men, 
we seriously jeopardize our own salvation? Note the Lord's words. I was unhungered, and ye gave me no meat. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and ye took me not in, sick and in prison, and ye visited me not. Verily I say unto you, Inasmuch as ye did it not to one of the least of these, ye did it not unto me. Those to whom he spoke, who were thus neglectful, were not counted with the sheep of his fold. They were not on his favored right hand, but on his left, where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. And these, the scripture says, shall go away into everlasting punishment. The first epistle of John tells us that if we do not have good relationships with our neighbors whom we have seen, we cannot rightfully claim to love God whom we have not seen. Do we take time occasionally to read the Sermon on the Mount? It refers largely to our relationships with one another. Let me mention just a few of its principles. I quote from this sermon as it appears in the Book of Mormon. If ye shall come unto me, or shall desire to come unto me, and rememberest that thy brother hath aught against thee, go thy way unto thy brother, and first be reconciled to thy brother, and then come unto me with full purpose of heart, and I will receive you. Can we suppose for one moment that the Lord would welcome us on any other basis? And then we have this. If ye forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if ye forgive not men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Note what a great principle is involved here and how it can affect each one of us. If ye forgive not men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Let us pause a moment and ask ourselves if we can enter his kingdom with any unforgiven sins. And then he said, Judge not that ye be not judged, for with what judgment ye judge, ye shall be judged, and with what measure ye meet, it shall be measured to you again. In the first section of the Doctrine and Covenants, we read that the Lord shall come to recompense unto every man according to his work, and measure to every man according to the measure which he has measured to his fellow man. This teaching deserves the most careful consideration, for on Judgment Day the Lord will mete out to us precisely as we have dealt with our fellow men, unless we have fully repented. It is a staggering thought, and yet it is an integral factor in the Lord's method of judgment. Do we realize its broad significance? Do we see how we shall reap what we sow? This principle, showing the manner by which God will judge us, puts a new light upon the commandment to love our neighbor as ourselves and should persuade us to take that law seriously. 
It also helps us to understand the deep meaning of the golden rule. All things whatsoever ye would that men should do to you, do ye even so to them. This is a commandment. And to further emphasize it, the Lord said, This is the law and the prophets. It is not something we may lightly set aside. Does it not help us to better understand the 25th chapter of Matthew? Can we see then his purpose in disciplining people for being unkind to their fellow men? What makes it even more compelling is another statement which the Lord gave us in the Sermon on the Mount, and this to me is awesome. Said the Lord, Verily I say unto you, that except ye shall keep my commandments which I have commanded you at this time, ye shall in no case enter into the kingdom of heaven. It's frightening, isn't it? With this scripture, we should keep in mind another divine declaration. No unclean thing can enter into his kingdom. Therefore, nothing entereth into his rest, save it be those who have washed their garments in my blood because of their faith and the repentance of all their sins and their faithfulness unto the end. And he that endureth not unto the end, the same is he that is also hewn down and cast into the fire, from whence they can no more return because of the justice of the Father. Doesn't that startle you? Doesn't it convince you that we must take his commandments seriously? When we ask, What think ye of Christ? Should we not ask ourselves also if we truly accept the high standards of life he has established for admittance into his kingdom? Compliance with them is what puts oil in our lamps, if we may refer to the Lord's parable. If we hope to enter his kingdom, we cannot, dis we cannot regard these basic commandments as if they were optional. He has said, This is the way. Walk ye in it. If we are unkind, unclean, dishonest, or cruel, if we are hypocritical and appear pious when in fact our hearts are evil, we throw our hope of salvation to the four winds unless we truly repent. As he spoke to the Nephites, the Savior asked, What manner of men ought ye to be? And he quickly replied, Even as I am. We all remember these familiar words. Not every one that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father who is in heaven. This, too, should give us pause, for mere protestations of faith will not admit us into the kingdom, even though we may say, We have prophesied in thy name, and in thy name have cast out devils, and in thy name done many wonderful works. If we have not obeyed the weightier matters of the law, dealing justly with our fellow men, he will surely say to us, I never knew you. Depart from me ye that work iniquity. This helps us to better understand the words of Paul as he said, Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels and have not charity, 
I am become a sounding brass or a tinkling cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains and have not charity, I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned and have not charity, it profiteth me nothing. And what is charity in its true sense? It is the pure love of Christ which helps us to love both God and our fellow men. In the book of Alma, we read a further explanation. If ye do not remember to be charitable, ye are as dross, which the refiners do cast out, it being of no worth, and is trodden under foot of men. The Lord teaches us that we cannot serve two masters, God and mammon, at the same time, but many still try to do so. Why is the Lord so strict in requiring detailed obedience from us? It is because He expects us to become perfect as He is. The very object of our existence as children of God is to become like Him. But no unclean thing may enter His presence. Therefore, we must perfect ourselves beginning here in mortality, keeping in mind that we cannot achieve perfection through imperfect means. That is why God is so strict. That is why He cannot look upon sin with the least degree of allowance. One of our great failings is that often we are slothful in complying with the commandments. With respect to this, he said, It is not meet that I should command in all things. For he that is compelled in all things, the same is a slothful and not a wise servant. Wherefore he receiveth no reward. But he that doeth not anything until he is commanded, and receiveth a commandment with a doubtful heart, and keepeth it with slothfulness, the same is damned. The prophet Abinadi gave us further understanding of this vital principle in these words. The Lord redeemeth none such that rebel against him and die in their sins. Yea, all those that have perished in their sins ever since the world began, that have willfully rebelled against God, that have known the commandments of God and would not keep them, these are they that have no part in the first resurrection. For salvation cometh to none such, for the Lord hath redeemed none such. Yea, neither can the Lord redeem such. But nevertheless, the Lord invites all to come unto him on conditions of repentance and says, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and ye shall find rest to your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So what are we to do? We are to seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. We are to give our religion first priority in our lives. 
and then serve God with all our hearts and do unto others as we would be done by as we travel down the road to Jericho. And that we may do so is my humble and earnest prayer in the sacred name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. My dear brothers and sisters, I seek the inspiration of the Holy Spirit as I respond to this opportunity to speak to you today. I recognize that a good share of you have traveled great distances to assemble in the historic tabernacle here on Temple Square. From the north, the south, the east, the west, you've come traveling the roads which lead to Salt Lake City. That word road is an intriguing one. A generation ago, movie producers featured Bob Hope, Bing Crosby, Dorothy L'Amour in a series of films entitled The Road to Rio, The Road to Morocco, The Road to Zanzibar. Earlier yet, the poet Rudyard Kipling wrote the lines which immortalized another road, the road to Mandalay. But today, I've been thinking of a road made famous by the Lord. I speak of the road to Jericho. Could we for a moment refer to that book, The Gospel According to Luke, the 10th chapter, and relive the memorable events which made famous for all time the Jericho Road. You'll remember that a certain lawyer stood up tempting the Savior and asked, Master, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And the Lord said to him, What is written in the law? How readest thou? And he answered, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, and with all thy soul, with all thy strength, and with all thy mind, and thy neighbor as thyself. And Jesus said, Thou hast answered right. Do this, and thou shalt live. But the lawyer, willing to justify himself, asked, And who is my neighbor? Jesus answering said that a certain man journeyed from Jerusalem down to Jericho and fell among thieves who stripped him of his raiment and who wounded him and departed, leaving him half dead. And by chance there came that way a certain priest who, when he saw him, passed by to the other side. And likewise a Levite who, when he came to the place, he too passed by to the other side. And then there came a certain Samaritan, and when he saw him, he had compassion on him, and he did bind up his wounds, pouring in oil and wine. And then he put him on his own beast and took him to the inn and cared for him. Before he departed on the morrow, he took two pence from his pocket gave it to the host, and said, Here, take these and care for him. And whatsoever thou spendest more, when I come again I shall repay thee. Then said the Savior, Which of these three 
was neighbor unto him who fell among thieves? And the lawyer answered, He that showed mercy upon him. And Jesus said unto him, Go, and do thou likewise. Every one of us, in his journey through mortality, will travel a Jericho road. What will be your experience? What will be mine? Will I fail to see him who has fallen among thieves and needs my help? Will you? Will I look upon him who is injured, hear his plea, and cross by to the other side? Will you? Or will I be one who sees and who hears, who pauses and who helps? Will you? The key was given by the Lord when he said, Go, and do thou likewise. When we follow that divine injunction, there opens to our view a vista of joy superior to anything that we would know in mortality. Now, the Jericho Road that we travel may not be well marked, and the injured may not call out that we might hear. But when we follow in the footsteps of that good Samaritan, we shall follow the pathway which leads to perfection. The Lord in his ministry gave us many examples of how our conduct ought to be. Remember his experience with the crippled man at the Pool of Bethesda, with the adulterous woman, with the woman at Jacob's well, the daughter of Jairus. How about Lazarus, the brother of Mary and Martha? Each one represented a casualty on a Jericho road. Each one needed help. To the cripple at the pool of Bethesda, the Savior said, Rise, take up thy bed, and walk. To the sinful woman, Go thy way and sin no more. To her who came to gather water, he gave a well of water, spiritual water, springing up unto spiritual life. And to the dead daughter of Jairus came the gentle command, Damsel, I say unto thee, Arise. And to the entombed Lazarus the memorable words, Lazarus, come forth. Well might the critics say, These events occurred in the life of the Redeemer of the world. Is it possible that you and I can have similar experiences on our personal mortal journey? My answer is a resounding yes. And today I'd like to share with you two such examples. First, the instance of a boy, an injured boy, who was rescued on his Jericho road. And second, I should like to relate my first experience in finding my way to Jericho. Some years ago, there went to his eternal reward one of the kindest men who ever graced mortality. He was the friend to the friendless. He hired the immigrant. He spoke at more funeral services than anyone I've ever known. His name was Louis Jacobson. In a reflective mood one day, he told me of his boyhood, how he was the son of an impoverished Danish widow, how he was rather homely in appearance and easily the object of fun and derision 
on the part of his thoughtless classmates. He explained to me that one Sunday in Sunday school, the boys and girls made fun of his patched trousers, his homemade shirt, and what he described as his soup bowl haircut. Too proud to cry, Tiny Lewis fled from the chapel, pausing at last to sit on a curb to catch his breath. The curb was the one that ran along 2nd West Street right in Salt Lake City. As he sat there, he took from his pocket a paper. It was the Sunday school lesson outline. He folded it and made a crude paper boat and launched it along the turbulent waters that ran next to the curb. And then from his hurt heart, he made the firm resolve, I'll never go back to Sunday school again. But then, as he looked into the water through his tear-filled eyes, he saw reflected the image of a tall and well-dressed man. He looked up right into the face of George Burbage, the Ward Sunday School superintendent. That kindly leader said, Lewis, may I sit next to you on the curb? And in his Sunday best, that good Samaritan sat next to the injured boy and put his arm around him. Together they launched many paper boats down the gutter. But when they stood, they stood hand in hand and walked back to the Sunday school class. Lewis Jacobson later became the superintendent of that one and only Fifth Ward Sunday School, and he never forgot to acknowledge the day that a good Samaritan rescued him on his Jericho Road. When I heard that explanation, I thought of the words of the poet who said, He stood at the crossroads all alone, the sunlight in his face. He knew nothing of roads unknown. He was set for a manly race. But the road stretched east, and the road stretched west, and the boy knew not which road was best. So he chose the road that led him down, and he lost the race and the victor's crown. At last he was caught in an angry snare, because no one stood at the crossroads there to show him the better way. Another day in this selfsame place, a lad with high hopes stood. He, too, was set for the manly race. He, too, was seeking that which was good. But one was there who the roads did know, and he showed the boy which road to go. So he turned from the road that led him down, and he won the race and the victor's crown. Today he walks the highway fair because someone stood at that crossroads there to show him the better way. When I was about ten years of age, I came to a crossroads in life. Christmas was approaching, and I yearned like only a boy can yearn for an electric train. I didn't want one of those cheap models that you'd wind up with a key. I wanted one that would be powered by the miracle of electricity. These were depression times, so it was with considerable sacrifice that mother and father on Christmas morning, placed under that tree, my beautiful electric train. I sat at that transformer and operated that train hour after hour. And then Mother came into the room. 
She said, Tommy, I bought a train for Mark Hansen, who lives down the lane. Would you like to come with me and we'll give it to him? I said, Mother, could I see the train? She showed it to me. It was a wind-up model. But I noticed one car in that train set, a beautiful aluminum-colored oil tank car. My train had no beautiful aluminum-colored tank car. And envy began to well up in my boyish heart. I put up such a fuss that Mother handed me that car, and she said, Here, if you feel you need it more than Mark Hansen, you take it. And I took it. (laughs) I coupled it with my train and was proud of the result. But then I joined Mother as we went down the lane to Widow Hansen's, as she was called. Mark was a year or two older than I, and when we handed him the train set, he was overjoyed. He anticipated no such gift. Quickly he put the little track together, and as he coupled the engine which he had wound up with the key to its two remaining cars, I watched that engine and its little load go around the track, and every revolution my heart seemed to cut deeper and deeper with pains of regret. Mother wisely said, What do you think of Mark's train, Tommy? I said, Mother, I'll be right back. (laughs) I ran from the Hanson home and ran as fast as my legs could carry me up Fifth South Street to my house. I burst into the living room, reached down and uncoupled that aluminum-colored oil tank car, put it under one arm, hesitated, then reached down and uncoupled a lumber car that belonged to my own train, put it under the other arm, and ran down the lane to Mark Hansen's. And as soon as I entered the living room, I yelled at the top of my voice, Mark, Mark, we forgot two cars that belong to your train. And he coupled them in place, and as that train went around the track, the engine with its heavier load, I felt a feeling difficult to describe and impossible to forget. It was time for Mother and I to go, and as we walked up Fifth South Street, I looked at my mother, she who with her hand in the hand of God's had walked bravely down into the valley of the shadow of death to welcome me, her son, across the bridge into life, now smiled at me, took me by the hand, and we walked home together by way of our Jericho Road. We, like the Good Samaritan, had found a treasured opportunity to help. Some remember Mother for rhymes recited, stories told, music played, but I remember Mother for the day we walked to Jericho. My dear brothers and sisters, this day there are many souls to save. There are deeds to be done. There are kind words to express. The world is filled with persons who are lonely, who are sick, who are afflicted, who are wandering. They all cry out for help. Yet the road signs of life, they enticingly beckon the traveler this way to wealth, this way to affluence, this way to popularity, this way to success. 
I pray that each one of us may pause at the crossroads and listen for that still, small voice which ever so gently invites, Come, follow me this way to Jericho. My prayer is that we might listen and follow him along that Jericho road. In the name of Jesus Christ the Lord, amen. We have come to the close of these glorious days of great spiritual uplift during which we have listened to words of inspiration and revelation from our presiding brethren. We have been blessed by hearing praises to the Lord sung by this great tabernacle choir. We have all felt the outpouring of the Spirit of the Lord as we have assembled in His name to worship and be instructed by the power of the Holy Ghost. This has always been the pattern of the meetings of the saints, for we read in the Book of Mormon the words of Moroni, and who said, and their meetings were conducted by the Church after the manner of the workings of the Spirit and by the power of the Holy Ghost. For as the power of the Holy Ghost led them whether to preach or to exhort or to pray or to supplicate or to sing, even so it was done. We have been counseled in the ways of righteousness, urged to be faithful and to keep the commandments of God, to love the Lord and our fellow men, we have been warned against the pitfalls of following the ways of Satan and counseled to resist evil by being humble, prayerful, and submissive to the constant promptings of the Spirit. We have this great promise from our Lord given in our day. Quote, Assembly as the Lord liveth, who is your God and your Redeemer, even so surely shall you receive a knowledge of whatsoever things ye shall ask in, my, in faith with an honest heart, believing that you shall receive. Yea, behold, I will tell you in your mind and in your heart by the Holy Ghost, which shall come upon you and which shall dwell in your heart. Now, behold, this is the spirit of revelation. Of all things for which we should be most grateful today is that the heavens are indeed open and that the restored Church of Jesus Christ is founded upon the rock of revelation. Continuous revelation is under indeed the very lifeblood of the gospel of the living Lord and the Savior, Jesus Christ. We proclaim to the world in one of our articles of faith we believe all that God has revealed, all that he does now reveal, and we believe that he will yet reveal many great and important things pertaining to the kingdom of God. From the scripture of ancient time comes this ringing declaration. Surely the Lord God will do nothing, but he revealeth his secrets unto his servants, the prophets. This postulation to the prophet Amos has come down from antiquity and speaks of the Lord, of the Lord Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. 
we read of the unchangeable Lord in the Holy Scriptures, in the Bible, which we proclaim to be the Word of God, as far as it is translated correctly. The Old Testament prophets from Adam to Malachi are testifying of the divinity of the Lord Jesus Christ and our Heavenly Father. Jesus Christ was the God of the Old Testament, and it was He who conversed with Abraham and Moses. It was He who inspired Isaiah and Jeremiah. It was He who foretold through those chosen men the happenings of the future, even to the latest day and hour. And the New Testament is what it implies, a new additional witness and testimony of the Sonship of Jesus Christ and the fatherhood of the Father and the divinity of this work and the necessity of living the gospel which he outlines and proclaimed. We do not accept the theory of the so-called teachers of Christianity that the Old Testament continued constituted the total words of God's prophets, nor do we believe the New Testament to be the end of Revelation. We testify that rather than an end of Revelation of God, that they continue to pour forth from God for the welfare and benefit of men. I believe with Peter of old, who said, For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved on by the Holy Ghost. How this confused world of today needs revelation from God. With war and pestilence and famine, with poverty, desolation, with more and more graft, dishonesty, and immorality, certainly the people of this world need revelation from God as never before. How absurd it would be to think that the Lord would give to a small handful of people in Palestine and the old world his precious direction through revelation and now in our extremity close the heavens. However, it is a sad truth that if prophets and people are unreachable, the Lord generally does nothing for them. Having given them free agency, their Heavenly Father calls, persuades, and directs aright His children, but waits for their upreaching hands, their solemn prayers, their sincere, dedicated approach to Him. If they are heedless, they are left floundering in midnight's darkness, when they could have the noonday sun. When the children of Israel would not live the commandments, believe in Him, and follow His program, the Lord said, And I will break the pride of your power, and I will make your heaven as iron, and your earth as brass, and your strength shall be spent. If the Bible were the end of the prophets, then it was through lack of faith and belief, and that is the reason the heavens at times were closed and locked and became as iron, and the earth as brass. When the heavens are sealed, the spiritual darkness that follows is not unlike that physical darkness in Nephite history when, quote, neither candles, neither torches, neither could there be any kindled with their fine and exceeding dry wood. 
The Lord will not force himself upon people, and if they do not believe, they will receive no revelation. If they are content to depend upon their own limited calculations and interpretations, then of course the Lord will leave them to their chosen fate. Speaking of miracles and revelation, the Book of Mormon prophet Moroni states this, If these things have ceased, then has faith ceased also, and awful is the state of man, for they are as though there had been no redemption made. In the meridian of time, the Son of God, the light of the world, came and opened the curtains of heaven and earth were again in communion. But when the light of that century went out, the darkness was again impenetrable. The heavens were sealed and the dark ages moved in. I bear witness to the world today that more than a century and a half ago, the iron ceiling was shattered. The heavens were once again opened, and since that time revelations have been continuous. That new day dawned when another soul with passionate yearning prayed for divine guidance. A spot of hidden solitude was found. Knees were bended, a heart was humbled, pleadings were voiced, and a light brighter than the noonday sun illuminated the world the curtain never to be closed again. A young lad, spoken of by brethren this day, a young lad, Joseph Smith, of incomparable faith, broke the spell, shattered the heavens of iron, and reestablished communication. Heaven kissed the earth, light dissipated the darkness, and God again spoke to man revealing anew his secrets to his servants, the prophets. A new prophet was in the land, and through him God set up his kingdom, never to be destroyed nor left to another people, a kingdom that will stand forever. The forgiveness of this kingdom and the revelations which it brought into existence are absolute realities. Never again will the sun go down. Never again will all men prove totally unworthy of communication with their Maker. Never again will God be hidden from His children on the earth. Revelation is here to remain. In the early years of His newly established dispensation, the Lord set His divine law of succession, and prophets have followed each other and will continue to follow each other in never-ending, divinely appointed succession, and the secrets of the Lord will be revealed without measure. By the power of God, other books of Scripture have come into being, vital and priceless, records of ancient America with teachings of Christ, another testimony of His divinity form of the Book of Mormon, which we declare to be divine scripture, contemporary with sustaining the Bible. Since that momentous day in 1820, additional scriptures continued to come, including the numerous and vital revelations flowing in a never-ending stream from God to His prophets on the earth. Many of these revelations are recorded in another scripture called the Doctrine and Covenants, completing our Latter-day Saints scriptures in the Pearl of Great Price 
another record of revelation and translated writings of both ancient and modern prophets. There are those who would assume that with the printing and binding of these sacred records, that that would be the end of the prophets. But again, we testify to the world that revelation continues and that the values, the vaults, and the files of the church contain these revelations which come month to month and day to day. We testify also that there is, since 1830, when the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints was organized, and will continue to be so long as time shall last, a prophet recognized of God and his people who will continue to interpret the mind and will of the Lord. Now a word of warning. Let us not make the error of the ancients. Numerous modern sectarians believe in the Abrahams, the Moseses, and the Pauls, but resist believing in today's prophets. The ancients also could accept the prophets of an earlier day and denounce and curse the ones who were their contemporaries. In our day, as in times past, Many people expect if there be revelation, it will come with awe-inspiring, earth-shaking display. For many, it is hard to accept as revelation those numerous ones in Moses' time, in Joseph's time, and in our own year, those revelations which come to prophets as deep, unassailable impressions setting down on the prophet's mind and heart as dew from heaven or as the dawn dissipates the darkness of night. Expecting the spectacular, one may not be fully alerted to the constant flow of revealed communication. I say in the deepest of humility, but also with the power and force of a burning testimony in my soul, that from the prophet of the Restoration to the prophet of our own year, the communication line is unbroken. The authority is continuous. The light, brilliant and penetrating, continues to shine. And the sound of the voice of the Lord is a continuous melody and a thunderous appeal. For nearly a century and a half, there has been no interruption. Man never needs to stand alone. Every faithful person may have the inspiration for his own limited kingdom, but the Lord definitely calls prophets to do it today and reveals his secrets unto them as he did yesterday. He does today and will do tomorrow. That is the way it is. As we sang, we thank the O God for a prophet earlier in the afternoon. The thought ran through my mind, which I have expressed before. I hope you are all thinking of Joseph Smith, of Brigham Young, of John Taylor, of Wilfred Woodruff, and all the other brethren. I hope you are thinking of Brother McKay, and Brother Smith, and Brother Smith, and Brother Lee, and all of those who have filled this position in those days. They have filled a great service. They have done a great work for the people of this world. They have organized the church and continued to 
develop it, and it has grown tremendously under their care. I hope we will always remember that and not let it all be centered in the local person who then lives because the works of God continue in all these areas. Before I close, I should like to mention two other matters. One, I hope you have had the opportunity to see the four beautiful statues that have been placed just east of the temple in the central church plaza. These four are a part of the group of 13 honoring women to be set up next year in the Relief Society Park in Nauvoo, the visitor center there. These four have been placed in the plaza for your enjoyment. They are lovely indeed. We invite you to visit that area and see the statues while you are here in Salt Lake City. And then I wished, if I can take the time, I was impressed when Brother Hinckley spoke of Joseph Smith so tenderly and sweetly, and the thought went through my mind of that last night in Carthage, Illinois. They were gathered together there with the mob all around them, and uh, the prophet Joseph Smith asked one of the brethren to sing for him that poor wayfaring man of grief. A poor wayfaring man of grief hath often crossed me in my way, who sued so humbly for relief that I could never answer nay. I had not power to ask his name, whereto he went or whence he came. Yet there was something in his eye that won my love. I knew not why. Once, when the scanty meal was spread, he entered. Not a word he spake, just perishing for want of bread. I gave him all, he blessed it, break, and ate, but gave me part again. Mine was an angel's portion then, for while I fed with eager haste, the crust was manna to my taste. I spied him where a fountain burst. Clear from the rock, his strength was gone. The heedless water mocked his thirst. He heard it, saw it, hurrying on. I ran and raised the sufferer up. Thrice from the stream, he drained my cup. Dipped and running to, and returned and running over, I drank and never thirsted more. Twas night, the floods were out. It blew a winter hurricane aloof. I heard his voice abroad and flew to bid him welcome to my roof. I wrapped and I, <coughs> pardon me, I warmed and clothed and cheered my guest and laid him on my couch to rest. Then made the earth my bed and seemed in Eden's garden while I dreamed. Stripped, wounded, beaten, nigh to death, I found him by the highway side. I roused my po his pulse, brought back his breath, 
revived his spirit and supplied wine, oil, refreshment. He was healed. I had myself a wound concealed, but from that hour forgot the smart and peace bound up my broken heart. In prison, I saw him next condemned uh, to meet a traitor's doom at morn. The tide of lying tongues I stemmed and honored him mid shame and scorn. My friendship's utmost zeal to try, he asked if I for him would die. The flesh was weak, my blood ran chill, but the free spirit cried, I will. Then in a moment, to my view, the stranger started from disguise. The tokens in his hands I knew. The Savior stood before mine eyes. He spake, and my poor name he named. Of me thou hast not been ashamed. These deeds shall thy memorial be. Fear not, thou didst them unto me. God bless you, brothers and sisters. It has been a wonderful conference and a joy to mingle with you these days. Peace be with you, and may his joy and peace continue with you. We know it is true. I know the Lord lives. I know that he's revealing his mind and will daily to us so that we can be inspired to the direction to go. We ask this all with our affection for you. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. amen.